0: Coming up this hour, we're going to hit some headlines, and then we're joined by Dr. Michael T. Cooper, author of the new book, Ephesiology. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. We are digitally high-fiving each of you. Thank you for joining us today. Brian Fromm, is uh, is this your least favorite day of the week? Have we ever talked about how you feel about today? I mean, Tuesday
1: is kind of a mad day, right? It's not hump day. We're not (laughs) close to the weekend. So I'm not
0: against Tuesday, but yeah, you know, it's, it's an unspectacular day. That's for sure. Unspectacular, but God moves even in the ordinary, Brian, even on Tuesdays, (laughs) I would love for someone to make that shirt. God, God is moving even on Tuesdays.
1: (laughs) If we ever have a, if we have to rename our show, we should just call it even Tuesdays, (laughs) even Tuesdays, people are
0: like. Wait, it's a five-day-a-week show, though, and you call it Even Tuesdays? <laughs> yeah, it's a whole thing. You just uh, listen to the show. You'll get it. <laughs> you'll get it, and, which means they probably won't. Um, right? All right, so I have five headlines. They're kind of headline-ish, but uh, I'll let you, per usual, just select whatever one you'd like to tackle first.
1: Yeah, when you say they're headlines, they're not exactly like you know COVID or election, which I'm glad for. Sometimes yeah. you like, oh, talk it again. And this one caught my eye. Out of Singapore – uh, no kill lab grown meat to go on sale for the first time hmm. to Singapore's approval of chicken cells grown in bioreactors is seen as landmark moment across the industry. So I'll just read the first paragraph It says cultured meat produced in bioreactors without the slaughter of an animal has been approved for sale by a regulatory authority for the first time. The development has been hailed as a landmark moment across the meat industry. The chicken bites, Produced by U.S. company Eat Just have passed a safety review by the Singapore Food Agency, and the approval could open the door to a future when all meat is produced without killing of livestock, the company said. So uh, obviously, uh, they've got this is kind of what this company does. They're trying to get beyond us using real meat. I got to be honest. I read this for the first time and I said, that doesn't sound tasty. <laughs> and maybe it is. I have no idea. Well, well this is first-
0: clarification, Brett. it is real meat. This isn't tofu. It's not. Fi- it is real meat. But just not from real animals. Is that what? I- How am I reading this incorrectly? Oh, it's, from chicken it's from, cells. It's from the biology of real animals. Yes, they're growing it. It's it is real meat, though. Oh,
1: OK, that does change my opinion of it. And I really have no opinion of this like this. I read this and I said, I don't know what to think about this. Like one of my first thoughts was not to be like, I don't know if if we stopped eating animals, would there be way too many animals? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> did you know this? Currently, one hundred and thirty million chickens are slaughtered every day for meat. It says here that's wild that's and four lot. million pigs. So that is a lot. I have no real opinion on this. So this is fascinating. It is. Uh, kind of another move, uh, of science and, uh, we'll see, I, I don't know. It's hard to believe that something like this will catch on widespread, but maybe it will. What do you think about chicken cells, chicken bites?
0: Well, I probably, we don't have time to get into all of, I I have, I mean, I've seen a number of documentaries about how, of course you have, you know, how, how cruel, (laughs) yeah. A lot of these uh, conditions are for the animals. So there's, there certainly is a dark side to the industry as it currently stands, but like I'm a. I'm a blue collar boy from the Midwest. It's I have a hard time imagining myself. I also yes. know that the the price of a lot of these things, at least as I currently stand is astronomical. So, mm. you know, will it be as affordable, which is, I mean, that's all, that's already the, the, the conversation now, like, Oh, I could go get a burger from McDonald's or invest in, you know, better organic food from the grocery store. But a lot of it comes down to cost either way. Yeah. I don't have a, a manifesto on the topic. I just thought it was interesting okay. and a weird way to start the show. This one's, um, a really cool story out of Christianity today. I would highly recommend you, rec- uh, you recommend it. I recommend you recommend it. <laughs> I recommend you read it. Uh, so Logos, which is a uh, – how do you describe Logos? It's a, it's a commentary Bible resource. Software, com- Bible yeah, it's software. It's, like, yeah.
1: it's like take a pastor's entire library and put it into like a, uh, uh, a computer program or a resource, and that's basically right. Logos. It's unbelievable.
0: It's awesome. Here's the headline: Lagos enlists Black church leaders to diversify Bible study resources. A collective will bring more African American scholarship to 4.5 million users. I, I think this is timely, and it's the kind of conversation that you know a lot of people have been trying to think creatively for decades. But a lot of new people in this last year, in particular, trying to think through some of these lenses. Where are some of the gaps and the blind spots that we've not been mindful of, and to to get uh diversity voices black and brown voices into things like a, a logos i just think is a step in the right direction and a great accomplishment and i i applaud it I'm, che- I'm cheering them on that's that's all i'm gonna say about that one
1: and all i would say too is when you see some of the names like charlie dates and esau Makali, who has been on the show and others you go this is a, uh yeah. <laughs> this is a good thing for sure yes uh all right i'm gonna take the next one i want to jump to Uh, Marcus Lamb's Daystar TV pays back $3.9 million PPP loan after Inside Edition investigates church's jet purchase. Uh, Marcus Lamb is a charismatic leader of one of the world's largest religious networks, Daystar Television, which is also a very prosperous tax-exempt church. Lamb lives a life of luxury and owns a huge mansion with a beautiful pool. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, Lamb's Daystar TV applied for the government PPP loan. To help play employees', employees salaries, they received three point nine million dollars, and it goes on to say how Inside Edition found that some of it was used to buy a private jet and some other things. Add on top of this, I don't know if you saw it all over the place today, uh, that it said the the third most money in the in the in the city of Houston from PPP loans went to Joel Osteen's church. They got four point four million dollars. Many God. people upset about that, and so. Man, we, we seem to have all these talks and you could justify it. I'm sure we got to pay our employees this and that, but uh, or they could justify it. I'm sure. Uh, but we <laughs> seem to keep having to go back to the stories about uh, nonprofits and churches that are tax exempt, taking in exorbitant amount of monies and, and just going, I don't blame people outside the church, especially for going. That's wrong. That's not fair. So uh, these stories pop up way too often for sure.
0: Yeah, and as always, we'd love to know what you all think. This is posted up on our Facebook page. I'll just read the headline for this one because I want to end on a more positive note. Family kicked off of United Airlines flight after a toddler refuses to wear masks. What do you what do you think of this one, Brian?
1: It's a hard one because I know that they've got the rules on the on the planes, but I'd like to think there's a little bit of grace with a toddler because she was just crying and crying. We've all been in that spot with a toddler. Uh, and then they had to ask them to leave the plane. I don't know. I tend to be a, I tend to be like, ah, just let them go. So I know there's probably a lot of people out there going, nope, we got it. You know, we got it. It's all about the uh-huh. masks. So I get it. I get both sides. When I read the story, I'm like, I don't know. Could you figure out a way just to let them get to their destination? But, yeah, they were taken off the plane. And, uh, yeah, you know, this is uh, this is 2020 for us, for sure, especially when it comes to masks now.
0: Just a, just a hard story, man. All right, take take us home with this last one.
1: Yep, Albert Moeller endorses the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. He says they, quote, can be taken by pro-life Christians with legitimacy. Seminary president and theologian Albert Moeller on Monday said he will take the COVID-19 vaccine as soon as it's available to him and that he will do so not only for his health, but for the health of others. The president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary made the comments in a column on his website in which he listed seven moral principles for Christians to consider when studying the usage of vaccines. I'd encourage you to go read the rest of this article on our Facebook page, but Ian, uh, this is going to be a huge story going forward. Now that the vaccines are out, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of people saying, should we take them? Uh, We're going to hear lots of stories about the book of Revelation, I'm sure, and the Mark of the Beast. (laughs) Uh, But this is a big deal for somebody, uh, especially as conservative as Albert Moeller, seminary president, uh, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, very well-known person to say, yes, I'm going to take it and you should take it too. I think this is a big deal for him to come out early on and say this.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right. This won't be the last time that we have a conversation on this show about vaccines. My guess sure. is we'll be talking about this for a while still. But uh, like I said earlier, these are all up at our Facebook page uh, at Common Good Talk. I highly recommend you weigh in. Give us your thoughts. Send us a private message if you prefer to go that route. And we would love to hear from you. Really, really excited about our next guest. Dr. Michael T. Cooper is the author of the new book, A Physiology. He's going to join us for the next two segments here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You know the drill. You can find us all sorts of places, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Common Good Talk, as well as wherever it is you get your podcast. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, that helps us out a bunch. But we are absolutely thrilled to have, not for one, but two segments, Dr. Michael T. Cooper. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Ian. It's good to be with you all. Well, we uh we really appreciate you making the time and I'm I'm hoping you can take just a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience before we get
2: rolling here. Yeah, well um you said my name already. I'm uh the uh missiologist in residence for an international mission agency called East West Miss uh Ministries International based in Dallas. And we do work in 53 countries around the world and mostly focused on church planting movements, disciple making movements. And so I've had the privilege to work with some of the larger movements that we're seeing in the world today, and, and particularly in South Asia. Mm-hmm. And um, so I have, oh, wow. I've done training with church planters all over the world. And I write a book or two every once in a while. And as, as you all know, I, I write a blog or two every once in a while.
1: Yeah. Well, Michael, there's so many different areas we could go with you. But in your book, Ephesiology, uh, you said this. You said, if you want to understand principles for the growth of Christianity in the first century, the place to begin is the city of Ephesus. You had me at that one. Could you explain to our audience Mm. why that's the starting point and why that's a good spot to start?
2: You know, so often when we think about church planting, we'll look first at Jerusalem and then at Antioch. And Antioch, Antioch has for many years been kind of the model for a church planting uh, or, or, or church planting cinder church. But um, as I was in South Asia a couple of years ago, I started to think about Really, the implications of the church in Ephesus, and and I, I have always been fascinated with that church uh, from my early church planting days in the nineteen nineties. And so, I did a deeper dive on the church in Ephesus, and and you know, I knew that there were a number of New Testament books connected to that church, and I knew those were significant books. You know, we think of Acts nineteen, of course, the letter written to the Ephesians, First Second Timothy. In particular, and then you know, we might occasionally think of the book of Revelation. But what I began to notice was that more than forty percent of the New Testament is actually directly connected with that church in in uh in in Ephesus in Asia Minor. And so that indicated to me that there's something significant here. And if we could get a good grasp of this of the story that happened to not only see that church start and that movement start. But to understand the theology that undergirded it, the leadership that propelled it forward, um, the multiplication that happened, and then how it was sustained, that that might give us some inclination to what a movement should look like in our day and age. And, and perhaps even inspire us, particularly in North America, to reconsider uh, church planting in the way of the New Testament.
0: So as you know, Brian and I are both pastors. Brian actually planted the church that he's still at today. I'd be curious. Obviously, we want people to go buy the book, so don't you know re- reveal all your secrets. But like, what what are some of the the core kind of theological tenets that do undergird that surprised you that maybe you're not often hearing you know at conferences and lectures? Like, what what are some of those things that you really grappled with?
2: Well, the two come immediately to mind, and and one is just simply. Trying to answer the question, what is God's will? And, and I'll tell this brief mm. story um, about how that became so compelling to me. Uh, I, w- I had just returned from South Asia and I was uh, with our youngest son on our way to church and he was driving. I was completely jet lagged. But I'd been mm. captivated by this question what is God's will? And uh, as Christopher and I were talking, I, I asked him, hey, what do you think it is? And, and he turned to me with his eyes on the road, of course, uh, looked at me and said, you know what, Daddy, that's simple. God's will is, uh, is for us to evangelize. And I thought, you know what? That's brilliant. And, and I think it's that simple. Mm. Um, and, and that's what we see in the success of that movement is that they were absolutely committed to evangelizing. As I began to study more uh, of the theological underpinnings, I, I see, that, see that emerge, particularly in the letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 1, it's so clear Paul uses that uh, word, uh, the will of God, uh, several times in that first chapter. And all of it points to not, not the answer to what I'm supposed to do or, or what is God's will for my life. But what is God's will, period? And he answers the question. And he says that that God's will is to unite all things in Christ. And uh and, and it's that simple. You know, I don't think church planting is complicated. I, I think it it just demands simply the hard work of being on God's mission and doing his will to work at uniting all things in Christ. So that that was, you know, at the in the same time, it was simple and yet liberating to know that, gosh, I don't have to figure this out. God's already figured it out. I just need to right. identify with it and understand that this is what I've been predestined to do by God. That's a part of the spiritual blessings that I inherit because of what Christ has done. And so now I simply join with what he's doing already and uniting all things in Christ and um and so yeah it just became a liberating thought
1: yeah that's, that's powerful uh you talk about discovering god's passion for movement and people some people might be a little confused what do you mean by a movement could you describe when you when you use the term movement what you mean
2: you know many people use that word today and and it's become a a, a popular word and particularly in in uh the north american culture the the me too movement we hear about the black lives mm. matter movement and and so on But here we're talking about uh, God's movement in uh, the New Testament and in in the world. And when I talk about uh, what it is or how we might go about defining a movement, of course, I'm looking at characteristics uh, of what that movement did in the first century. And what we see common to uh, the movement in the New Testament is that it brought transformation uh, in society. Um, it impacted uh, structures and systems, uh, political systems, economic systems, religious systems. Um, it, that movement was a complete movement. And it's not something that we see very common today in, in uh, Christian movements, um, but something that we need to, to really uh, to rediscover that if we genuinely are going to be a movement, then there should be an utter transformation of society as a result of the gospel extending into people's lives.
0: Michael, we only have a, about a minute or so left in this segment, but I, I think what you said at the end there is so endlessly fascinating to me. Why, why do you think we see so few movements with the big, the big C Church? And maybe that's just my limited experience here in the West, but I feel like what you described is what a lot of pastors and church planners deeply want. Why, why do you think we see so little of that?
2: that's such a important question and one that i really wrestle with almost on a daily basis trying to think about mm-hmm. you know why aren't we seeing the things that we see in different parts of the world here in north america right. and i think really at least as i'm looking at it trying to, to to have eyes looking from the outside in um the one thing that i can boil it down to is that we might we might not really understand god's heart and his passion mm-hmm. to to, uh, to be glorified, and that his he, he is most glorified when there are more people worshiping him. I think sometimes mm-hmm. in in uh, and, and I think this is true globally. It's not just a North American thing, but we can often become distracted by ourselves and mm-hmm. by the things that we think that we need to be doing to achieve God's will in our life, and we lose sight of right. the theocentric nature of the the mission work that we see in the New Testament. You wrote an article that we actually referenced
0: on the show a couple of weeks ago that I, I just thought was fascinating and timely. And the headline simply read the dark side of hierarchical leadership. And we've been talking about, you know, the Carl Lentz stuff and others before him. I'd love for you to kind of give us sort of a 30,000 foot flyover of that article, where that came from, and, and maybe if you got
2: time, just a, a little bit of a way forward. Yeah, you know, the backstory to that article is um, coming out of the research that I was doing for the book, Ephesiology. And what I began to see as I was – and this was one of the surprises because it wasn't something that I was looking for. But what I began to see in terms of the leadership that could propel a movement forward was that it was flat. It wasn't hierarchical, Mm -hmm. and uh, I I was very surprised by that because you know, like many people uh, coming out of the North American context, I grew up in a pastor-centric church. Uh, We had elders and deacons, and there was an understanding of the hierarchy that was there, and we had church members that uh, were responsible to the elders and the pastor, and and so on. But um, as we're experiencing in in North America, that it, it, that system just doesn't work any longer here. I think for a period of time, it did work. Um, and, uh, but in the situation that we're in today with the precipitous decline of the church, um, one of the issues that we have to address is how do we get back to a place where our leadership can really propel a movement forward? And I think that place is is uh coming to an understanding of a flat leadership where empowerment is is pushed out to the body, where people are inspired to join together in the the hard work of uh sharing the gospel, where they're entrusted to do that, where people are actually entrusted to disciple others who would disciple others, and where they're reminded also to preach. Uh, the gospel, um, in season and out of season, as Paul told uh, Timothy. And so, yeah, that article comes out of that. And, uh, you know, we're just seeing some things in our society today and in our church culture today that uh, seem to be crying for a change in the way in which uh, leadership is is conducted in the context of the church. Mm-hmm. And it's not unusual. I mean, we go through these cycles in culture Every several years, you know, um, in the 60s and 70s, it was servant leadership, that that was the big thing. And then Mm -hmm. going into the 80s and 90s, we talked more about transformational leadership. And and those are good things and they're good adjustments. But I think we're now in a period of time in the history of the church in North America where we need to make another adjustment. And that adjustment, I'm suggesting, is a, a flat model of leadership. And that doesn't mean that there's no leadership or that there's no authority, but it means that leadership is shared, that uh, the, this idea of mutual submission mm. becomes critical mm. to a team of leaders who are gifted as as Jesus wants them to be gifted. Uh, you know, we read in Ephesians 4 about the apostle, the prophet, evangelist and shepherd and, and teacher, that that is a, a part of the DNA of the leadership structure that propels a movement of God uh, forward, and and ensures uh, continued multiplication and and sustainability of that movement.
1: Yeah, that's that's awesome. And uh, as you think about church planting, and as you think about raising up leaders in the way that you obviously are thinking through it, uh, what does equipping look like? What does equipping of new church planters look like for you?
2: you know we've been very active with uh, the sind institute and um just more than a year ago we were in a conversation at a at a think tank where we recognized that um not only do leadership systems need to change but equipping systems need to change we 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 have an equipping right. system that is uh, uh really not functioning the way that we would hope it would be. Because the reality is, um, as we're realizing uh, all the more, that uh, churches are closing and they're closing at uh, unprecedented rates. Mm -hmm. That Barna is estimating that something like one in five are going to close due to COVID. That's about 60,000 churches in North America. And so if that many churches are closing, how are we going to equip and train more church planters and retrain those who are uh, leaving the churches that are closing so that Mm. uh, we would see a uh, continued growth of Christianity in North America. And so we're very concerned about that. And and so uh, – Myself, along with a, a number of others, Ian, you mentioned earlier Alan Hirsch when we were off air, mm-hmm. but Alan's been a part of this, Jeff Christofferson, and a number of other people and other organizations have been thinking about, well, what is the type of education that's going to propel growth in the church? And so we've come up with um, a a uh, accessible uh, and affordable and uh, accredited uh, master's program. That's focused on providing a good, solid missiological foundation to our work, where we're uh, asking the hard questions of culture and trying to think about, well, how does, how does the good news actually become good news in this context? And then we're modeling after, we're modeling after uh, two things. One is APES leadership. Uh, th- that has got to be a part of our way forward as we think about uh, new churches starting. If we're not, if we don't have leaders that are apostolically, prophetically, evangelistically, uh, shepherdly and uh, and mm-hmm. teaching uh, uh, gifts, then, you know, I think we're going to do a disservice to God's people. And so it's focused around APES, but it's also focused around uh, what we've identified, not we've identified, but what we believe uh, are three uh, markers of the New Testament church. And that is that they focused on ministry uh, of the defense of the faith. You know, they stood against false apostles. They they focused ministry on uh, care for the marginalized they were deeply concerned mm. for the poor, for the widows, for the orphans and and those who right. were being exploited and then thirdly they uh, the ministry of the New Testament church was focused on the proclamation of the glory of God to all people and so so that 's our uh, a, a part of our emphasis is being sure that we 're preparing and equipping church planters that will be identified by those three marks and would uh, form a leadership team that could help to multiply and inspire that movement to go forward. I love that. I'm going to
0: try and shoehorn really kind of two things in our final minute here. One, I'd love for you to take just a second and make sure everyone knows every website or Twitter handle or wherever people can go to learn more about the book or the class or you as a person or an organization. And then, if you could just close give us give us some words of hope. I know a lot of people are really discouraged by what they see in their church in in the church. Could you just take 15 20 seconds and give us a, a word of hope for the the church in the future?
2: Yeah, the sure well everything can be found at ephesiology.com. Uh if you google ephesiology, we're we're the only uh people that use that uh, moniker. And uh so whatever wherever you see ephesiology, especially if it says something good about us, then uh, you, hopefully you'll find us. <laughs> <So, Look> there. <laughs> yeah, click there. And so ephesiology.com, add ephesiology on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then our, our courses are at masterclasses.ephesiology.com. And, and so if there is a word of hope, it, it's this. You know, Jesus promised that he would build the church, and, uh, and he's going to do that. And, I, and that is such, again, that's such a liberating thought. I'm not responsible for building Jesus's church. He is. And he is not going to let the gates of Hades uh, stand against it. And so we have that hope in him that he's the Lord of the church. He's going to do it. He's promised that it's going to happen. And uh, and so we can rest assured that he's going to secure uh, his church. That's a
0: good word, brother. Our guest today has been Dr. Michael T. Cooper. He is the author of the brand new book, Physiology. I cannot encourage you enough. Go to all the links he mentioned and learn more about the work that he and his team are doing. Michael, it's been a real joy. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's our our pleasure. pleasure. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with, alongside... In just digital along. proximity, along for the ride is Brian Fromm. I can't believe I haven't <laughs> used that one yet. <laughs> that makes it sound like I just kidnapped you or something. Like, and along for the ride, riding shotgun is Brian Fromm. Mm-hmm. Either way, you can find us all over the place. Was that an Ice Tea? I heard. Is that what's going on over there? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Oh. <laughs> Although you sh- I'm sure it will happen between now and the end. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to talk about the holidays yet. I'm just going to. I'm telling you that I'm not talking about them They're yet. They're coming. They are they are a common as we say, but a, to- a topic that I have admitted numerous times to not being very good at. Not, this is not an area of strength for me. Uh, I saw two different articles talking about sleep, and I thought, I think this is probably a worthwhile topic. We've talked about stress and anxiety and social media and mental health, but uh, throughout all of those, it seems like sleep actually is a, a common thread that sometimes kind of gets, at least in my own life, sort of overlooked a little bit and and i will even laugh about it on the show like ah you know i'm not a very good sleeper or we got young mm-hmm. kids but the more i'm researching the more i'm realizing like i'm i might be really harming myself by not you know making sleep a, a, a better priority so uh let's start with this atlantic one you want to get us into it a little bit i do and i would tell people this like is often true with at the atlantic A Hugely long article.
1: So I would encourage you to go check it out because there's so much in here. But like you said, we're just trying to use it as a jumping off point. It says the author talked about how there was a stage of his life where he was just not sleeping enough due to grad school and other things and residency and stuff. It said, no matter what happened to my body, I never felt like it was dangerous for me to keep working. I knew I was irritable and sometimes terse and I didn't smell the best, but I didn't think anything I did was unsafe. Sleep experts, though, often liken sleep deprived people to drunk drivers. They don't get behind the wheel thinking they're probably going to kill someone. But as with drunkenness, one of the first things we lose in, self, in sleep deprivation is self-awareness. Mm. Uh, it's, it's this way of thinking that you can power through, that sleep is the easiest corner to cut, that makes sleep disturbance among the most common sources of health problems in many countries. Insufficient sleep me- uh, causes many chronic and acute medical conditions that can have enormous impact on quality of life, not to mention the economy. While no one knows why we sleep, it is a universal biological imperative. No animal with a brain can survive without it. Dolphins are said to sleep with only half their brain at a time, keeping partially alert for predators. Many of us spend much of our lives in a similar state. So uh, you hinted at it, but what this article is going to get at here at The Atlantic is that, you know what? we It's almost a badge of honor sometimes when we're like, ah, I don't need my yeah. sleep. I get by on four hours. I do this. Right. You hear this all the time in reality not only does it make us less effective right not only does it make us you know uh just kind of lack of self awareness or we all know you don't work well when you're sleep deprived uh but what this article is really trying to bring home is no it's it's actually bad for you it's actually dangerous uh and bad for your health uh when you're constantly uh sleep deprived and and i do it's interesting why let me start here why do you think culturally i think Uh, we will often equate sleep uh, deprivation or lack of sleep uh, kind of with a badge of honor as to something to be proud of.
0: I think because we glorify production. I think that's Mm -hmm. why we glorify the hustle. We glorify accomplishment, achievement. Uh, And I say we to let myself off the hook. I often do like that. I need to turn that back on myself. Like that is, you know, we've, we've talked about this a little bit. That sometimes can be, the, the deadly sin of the Enneagram three as well. Just like always going, always accomplishing, always hustling and, you know, finding some of your self-worth in that. So it's not just that we value it. Sometimes I think it's even deeper than that. Our, our identity is rooted in what we can accomplish and what we can get done or what we have gotten done or are getting done. And I think um, for me, part of the struggle has been like sleep is the first thing to go. Like if I take on too much, I'm like well, I guess I'll knock off one hour that I was planning to get. And that's obviously not helpful. This, this other article, links the significance of diet, which I also think is really, really important. And we're not going to, it's also very long from the New York times, but it's, it's, it's fascinating how linked all of these things are because, you know, when we've touched on it in the past, there's aspects that feel like, Hey, you should have a bedtime routine or limit screen time, which is tough when everything's Mm -hmm. digital or, you know, maybe exercise more regularly. Those types of things are helpful. This article particularly comes at the angle of, of diet, but I would say, Encompass all of that, though. And if your identity, if the engine like in your soul is accomplishment and hustle, then this this might be a very real area of struggle. And I don't think it's I don't think it's a struggle only for those types of people. That's just the one that I I identify with. Like, do you do you find that you're better at just getting a good night's sleep?
1: Uh, not better. I have found some routine. It's interesting when you brought up kind of bedtime routine, I have, I I used to be the person that could just kind of hop into bed and just fall right to sleep, right? Like it would just, uh, and, and I remember always thinking, yeah, this you go to, I never could understand people who couldn't sleep and I still don't struggle with it necessarily, but I do find like now I've hit a stage of life now where it does require from me a little bit more routine and the biggest thing i need to do this was never true until like the last year or two i've gotten into this routine that if i don't read even for like 10 minutes just like an actual book not like my phone or something but like an actual mm. book while laying in bed if i don't do that for even like 5 or 10 minutes and start falling asleep no matter how tired i am i will have a hard time getting to sleep and and i think that's true for a lot of us like there's there's just rhythms that you get into where like yeah you know even if i'm exhausted Uh, I need to do this. Now it's becoming quite clear that things like phones and stuff work against our ability to sleep. But yeah, I used to be the guy who just, whether it was nine o'clock or midnight, if the second I laid down, I was falling asleep and I was sleeping through the night, that's changed a little bit. But, Mm -hmm. um, but thankfully I've never had much trouble sleeping. Do you have anything that you're like, yeah, I need to do that or else I won't fall asleep? Because you have talked about how like you have talked about where like your kids go to bed, your wife goes to bed and that's when you start your grad school work. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and which is a season of life that sometimes you just kind of have to do that, but also you've got to figure in these other things. So I'm wondering, let's ask this question. How do you wrestle with an article like this, knowing all the things you have going on in your life?
0: Well, and that's, that's probably part of why I said what I said earlier, because it's, it's not for me a matter of, Oh, I can't sleep and I need better habits to sleep. You know, <laughs> like, my wife and my sister-in-laws all kind of make the same joke like you Simpkinses is can fall asleep anywhere, anytime. <laughs> it's absurd. And we do. It's true. It could be. I mean, in in absurd places, I, I don't know if it's genetic, what it is. Most of the time we can fall asleep pretty quickly anywhere and we we sleep hard. Um, But a lot of it comes down to desire. I think it's it's either like you were saying, like, oh, I don't I don't know that we necessarily value sleep as much as maybe we should or. Other things just went out, and I can I can justify too. Like, well, it's a it's a season, and it is a season. You're not wrong there. I mean, but there's there's other parts of me where like I will legitimately make a decision to get a book on Kindle rather than a hard copy so that I can read it on the screen, so it'll help me stay awake, so I can keep reading it. Like, I have, <laughs> I got I have to think that through because if I open like a physical book that <laughs> that's like my kryptonite. I'm like, well, and I'm out. So if I have to read something for school, sometimes you know, knowing that it's happening late at night most of the time for me, I'm like, okay, well, I got to trick my brain into staying awake. And the more that I do that, the more I'm realizing and the older that I get and kids don't care that you're in grad school, they're waking up whenever they want, obviously, right, they don't care that it's time change weekend, they don't care that Papa works on a Sunday, like they don't, they don't care about any of that. So, you know, that's just trying to be better mindful of it for, for my kids and for my family. And uh, I don't know if you you're much better in this area, any, any parting words of wisdom in for someone that's maybe struggling to sleep? Well, Yeah.
1: Like you said, I'm at a different stage of life now. It's really weird. It just flips. Now my oldest goes to bed oftentimes after me or goes to sleep after me. But uh, for me, I do think something they suggest here about having somewhat uh, and again, stage of life and whatever's going on does affect this. But as best as possible, keeping to a somewhat constant bedtime and a constant wake up time and a constant routine, even on weekends, they say here will really help get you in some sort of cycle that does help. And again, there are some of you out there where sleep is an actual huge issue where you do need to see a doctor and, right. uh, and consider medication, totally get that. But this article does help with, uh, with just some things, you know, melatonin and other things. But I would say uh, limiting phone use and also having some consistency to your routine and times, I think
0: is super helpful. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, as always, that is up on our Facebook page. And we would love to know what you think. Coming up next, though, where are the working class? We're going to tackle that question coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Tim Ferriss and how do you navigate your kids' digital privacy? You're listening to The Common Good. everyone welcome back to the common good if we have no idea how to say this website just to get it out of the way you want know. to you want to spell it spell it out real quick
1: yeah it's p-s-e-p-h-i-z-o so i'm going silent p i'm going that this is called Sophizo. Sophizo. how about you Sophizo.
0: i would probably go i'd, I'd go suffizo i think okay. okay i can go with that doesn't doesn't really matter either way but uh I thought I found this pretty interesting and I've read a couple of other things on this blog recently. So I wonder where I'm, I'm seeing this must be, a friend or something. Either way, it's entitled, Where Are the Working Class? Take it away, Brian.
1: Yeah, it's written by a man by the name of Ian Paul, a theologian, author, speaker, academic, consultant, adjunct professor. He keeps going on and on. It's Dang. good. Uh, but uh, Ian Paul wrote this. Gary Jenkins writes, It is extraordinary how often working class people are ignored, overlooked, or written out of the story altogether. A prime example, at the November meeting of the Church of England General Synod, A new vision document for the National Church uh, of a more diverse church made no mention of working class people at all. A huge group Hmm. in the nation, heavily underrepresented in the church. We were promised a diversity of, quote, age, color and ethnicity, but there was no mention of class. The working Hmm. class people literally never got a mention in synod as a scandal and not just a scandal, but a gospel issue. That should profoundly concern us because it is about the spiritual welfare of millions of souls. as far back as 1985, the Archbishop's report on urban priority areas, faith in the city, stated, the Church of England's most enduring problem of the city has been its relationship with the working class. Not much has changed since, uh, Ian Paul writes. It has been rare, uh, sorry, it has been race and latterly, gender and sexuality, uh, rather than class that has been uppermost in the church's thinking. Class as a category has been ignored and working class people themselves have been uh, often overlooked, not just because of a kind of collective amnesia, but also, I believe, Ian Paul says, because of a deep rooted prejudice against working class people, which is endemic in British culture. This is obviously written by a Brit. The English working class, says Julie Burchill, is now the only group of people the chattering classes are happy to hear mocked or attacked, she said. We all recall, and then she takes different uh, ones. And from across the pond on our area, Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables. Uh, no wonder that this union, as Paul Embry has called his new book on why the left loathes the working class, despised. Of course, no one at the General Synod said they despised the working class. They just didn't mention them at all. That, if anything, is worse. So that's the premise here. Uh, pretty hard hitting here. What do you think about what Ian Paul had to write here?
0: I think it's fascinating and it's. You know, it's not something that I, I hear talked about that often, to be honest. I and I, as I was reading it, I was thinking, wait a minute, why why do I hear so little and read so little about this particular topic? I don't I don't know if you have any thoughts in that regard, but it, it really did kind of strike me in a weird way when I read it the first time, wondering, wait a minute, why is, why is this so devoid? Like it is, I, did, I, I, did, I couldn't come up with a good answer.
1: Yeah, and I, I'd love to see what you think, but I think, one answer to that very well may be that they're not easily distinguishable as much as you know okay. race or gender uh, are distinguishable. Uh, that could be one, but it, it is uh, it's something worth thinking about. Honestly, I read, remember reading fascinating articles about that was one of the reasons in 2016 uh, that many sociologists and political scientists that this is one of the issues that they believe got Donald Trump into the White House because many poor working class uh, people just felt forgotten. And they, they looked at least whatever you think of Donald Trump, they saw in his ret in his words, uh, he's going to fight for us. And that that's a lot of what pushed him into, into office. And so I do think this is a big deal, not just obviously in England, but on our right. side, uh, this kind of forgotten, uh, underrepresented working class within the church they're talking about here, but culturally, And I do think it's 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 interesting that they say it's not just forgotten, but it's one of the classes of people in which there you can still joke or still mock a little bit Hmm. uh, that they say. And that's that's challenging. That that is challenging. Uh, They talk a lot here in England. But but do you think uh, or in what ways do you think this plays itself out in our culture? If this if this is a description, not just of England, but of uh, the United States as well, whether it be our churches or just culturally, how do you think this kind of plays itself out?
0: Well, I, let me just read how it ends because I think that it answers your question perfectly. It says, the really strange thing about the problem of the church's relationship with the working class is that it is simply not perceived as a problem at all. Mm. The issue of class is scarcely in the agenda, but if we recall the famous saying of Archbishop Temple – the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of its non-members. The church will do well to reconsider its most enduring problem of the cities, its relationship with the working class, because in many areas, those are the people most likely to be its non-members. Mm-hmm. So much Christian effort is devoted to being fairer to the church's existing members. It's about you know divvying, uh, dividing up the cake more equally amongst those who gather around the table. But in the process, a whole group is being forgotten, a massive group comprising of millions of people that are not even at the table. They're not yet at the table, but they do need the bread of life. I think to your question, it's not like an enigma. Like, oh, there's a lot of brains kind of at least in my very limited corner of the universe. It's like, ah, we can't crack this code. I think I think he's spot on. He's like, it's it's that it's not even seen as a problem. It's like not even on our radar. And when you don't know what you don't know or you're blind, to your own blindness, that kind of I think can be really dangerous and I I think he, I think he presents a pretty compelling case that it's something that the church needs to have, you know, more front and center in its, in its strategy and conversations.
1: How would you even, there might, maybe there's people like me going, how would we even define the working class? Because I would guess it's, it's people who uh, are kind of living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, You know, churches do really well with, with people in extreme poverty, oftentimes homeless or whatever else. Uh, But would you think it's a fair definition? It's people like, you know, Uh, in our culture who are living paycheck to paycheck, kind of struggling to get by, uh, seeing people around them, you know, having many more benefits, but but you may not look at them and go, yeah, it's a daily struggle. Would that be how you define working class? Or if not, how would you define the working class after reading something like this?
0: Yeah, there's a paragraph in the middle where he says they're not all poor. They are not all council tenants. They are not all white. Many own their own homes, take their kids on holiday to Florida and have well-paid, highly skilled jobs. Many run their own businesses and drive the white vans that so impressed Emily Thornberry, the working class are, I believe a missiologically significant cultural group. By this, I mean, they are a group of people with particular cultural values, customs, and ideas in common that we need to take into account. If we are to engage in effective mission towards and with them as we would with any other cultural group, they include some of the poorest in our city, but they are not just socially deprived people. I I think that's. I think you're right on. You were saying earlier. It's like, yeah, it's really hard to define, which is part of what makes right. it difficult to think missiologically about at all. And I think that's oftentimes, right. unfortunately, the church just simply says, "Well, I we don't know how to find a way forward, so we'll direct our attention elsewhere." You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and it's just not a group even that we speak about culturally, let alone in the church, right? Like they, he said here, we. We divide by race. We divide by gender. Uh, Increasingly in our culture, we divide by sexuality. Uh, But this idea of class is often one that's like, oh, that's not that's that's not a title that we often discuss. And therefore, like he said, it's hard to define. And as churches think through how do we uh, care for and reach various classes and what that would even look like within our church. This is a pretty fascinating article.
0: And that's why I wanted to do it, because I, yeah, I read it and thought, I don't know that I have much to add, right. but it certainly if right, if anybody is feeling the way that we're feeling, we're like, yeah, why aren't we talking about this? At the very least, I wanted to fling it out into the interwebs and uh, we would love to hear from you. I think the conversation that we had earlier with Dr. Michael Cooper probably could shed a lot of light too, to how we missiologically can uh, can find a way forward. Either way, that's up at our Facebook page. And we would love to know what you think. Speaking of Facebook, though. How to navigate your kid's digital privacy. We're going to talk about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is still Ian Simpkins, and his name is still Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you are here. It it is. It is still. (laughs) Thank you for verifying. (laughs) (laughs) I affirm. (laughs) I never really thought about this. If you were to change your name legally, it would take me no less than six months to get used to saying whatever your new name. Like I had a friend. I don't know that I should out him like this. When we were like in middle school, his family moved to, I'll just say another state. So we don't, so I don't uh, disclose too much of his identity. When he, when he left, he was Jordan. And then when he came back, they moved back to uh, Michigan. He's like, Hey, my name is Jerry now. And we're like, (laughs) what? No, it's not. (laughs) He's like, yeah, I changed it to Jerry. We're like, whatever, Jordan. In hindsight, we were probably pretty, insensitive but uh he just chose to change yeah. it like huh. like yeah uh, and his and his parents were like all right you're Jerry now and i remember thinking wait can i do that that's that's awesome i is he
1: still Jerry as far as you know
0: you know what again without airing too much i think he got engaged and his uh now wife was like you know what i like jordan <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So I think he went back, I
1: think. That yeah, totally, I, I could be making this up entirely. Were you a Seinfeld guy? That that is a Seinfeld episode right now There where he's just like, <laughs> "I'm changing my name." And everyone else is like, "You can't do that." And he's like, "I'm going to." That's a George move I, right there.
0: I just did. Oh, that's exactly a George move. That's funny. I'm going to write <laughs> I'm going to write this out. I'm going to get the rights from him and make it into a that's uh like a piece episode. of performance art or something. Okay. <laughs> so here's one. You're going to have to do the heavy lifting in this one, Brian, yeah. because I don't think about my children's digital privacy at all yet because they're three and almost two, but that's not true. I actually think about it a lot. It keeps me up at night, but I don't actually have to enforce anything yet. So it's from uh, get pocket, how to navigate kids, digital privacy, what to know about the security of connected devices and how to steer kids toward the best digital practices. Mm-hmm. This is one that I imagine if, ki- if people have kids your age at all, Brian, they're like, yes, tell me more. Cause I, I, this feels like every 12 minutes I'm having a conversation to some degree, about kids' digital privacy. Sure. So uh, why don't you get us into
1: it? Yeah, I mean, I think the, artic- uh, the interview we did yesterday with David Moreau, and, and this was yes, what his yes. book was about, essentially. And we, as we said to him, this is a topic we tackle all the time. Uh, and as Ian said, I have children 17, 13, and 11. And so this, is, uh, this consumes a lot of my thought, especially after you made me mm-hmm. watch The Social Dilemma. Uh, <laughs> that, I didn't now that you. added just a nice thing of fear into it. No, I would uh, encourage people to watch not? it. So this is short articles, so let me just read it and we'll we'll get into it. Protecting kids' digital privacy has gotten more challenging every year. And that was before 2020 introduced families to virtual schooling, digital homework, and Zoom play dates. Connectivity is seeping into every part of children's lives, from the toys that now come with built-in Bluetooth or Wi-Fi connections to the smart devices they encounter at home. For help navigating the rapidly changing landscape, we called on our colleagues at the Mozilla Foundation, uh, who have researched dozens of connected devices for their annual buyer's guide. It helps you shop for the safest, most secure connected products from smart speakers and wireless headphones to fitness trackers and kids' tablets. They've curated a collection of articles and explore, that explores uh, some of the most pressing digital privacy issues facing kids and helps parents understand how to set them up for self-guided success. Uh, The foundation uh, leader who led the charge on this year's guide right down to testing the lion's share of the devices explains kids overshare. It's part of their charm. And as parents know, teaching kids when not to overshare is an important life skill in our connected world, teaching children that oversharing online has consequences, just like in the real world, is a good thing. It's a lesson most kids will likely really appreciate as they get older. And while it can feel like an uphill battle, it's comforting to remember when the best course of action is to control our own behavior. It says kids learn by watching adults. What does it tell our kids when we teach them from a young age that it's okay? uh, Everything they do, every click they make online can be tracked, monitored, and potentially used to target them. It's not just creepy. It's potentially dangerous. Let's teach our Hmm. kids privacy both online and off is power. And so that's the uh, article. But uh, this whole idea uh, of how to navigate kids digital privacy, I think they are going down the road of, um, you know, what do we let what do we teach our kids that they should share online? And this is hugely important, right? Because they don't their kids are more naive, right? There's not bad people on the other side of the screen or on this website or whatever else it might be. Or, you know, uh, people aren't using my information to advertise to me or whatever else it might be. And so how to have these conversations with your kids about what they share. But then I also think equally as important uh, that this article doesn't touch on, but, but what does it even mean for our kids to have privacy from us? Like, what does that
0: even look like?
1: Like, I don't know. Uh, And so you could take this both ways because as a parent, man, uh, you want to, like my 17 year old should have some more privacy from us than my 11 year old But not exclusive privacy, and nor does she, you know, as long as I'm paying for the phone, not even as long as. But, uh, you know what, (laughs) we're going to have this open relationship because you're not ready to navigate uh, the online world without mom and dad having a say and having eyes on it. Uh, But, man, it gets so tricky because, you know, when you're 17, you don't want mom and dad looking over your shoulders. And when you're 13, when you're whatever – but we, as parents, know the dangers that are out there. So I think this is twofold: How do we teach kids how to be online, but how do we also know what they're doing online, uh, mm-hmm. and what does that look like to mature and to grow and to get a little bit more freedom without being naive and stupid about it? I think these are. This is like parenting, like at near the top of the list of the issues that parents are facing right now today.
0: Well, I, I've never actually thought to ask you this question, but I I thought of it as you were reading. Do, do you think there's a a shadow side to some of this that we could, I don't know, maybe too intensely teach our children about privacy to the point where even in appropriate circumstances, they're totally cut off. Like, are are we going to see a wave 10, 15 years from now that, you know, like boogeyman philosophy behind our parenting made children suspicious of everyone? Always. Like there's certainly a part of me, there's a part of my brain that thinks good. You should be suspicious of everyone. The world is crazy. But the other part of me thinks, Oh, man, if we if we build in uh, an appropriate or inappropriate level of fear around technology, does that translate to their in-person social relationships to the point where even with peers or, you know, a romantic interest, like, they're still kind of closed off. They don't actually know how to engage in appropriate vulnerability because they've so overcorrected and they're just private from everyone everywhere all the time. Like, could that potentially be an issue, do you think?
1: I totally think so. I totally think you're onto something Hmm. there because we do this in other areas. So you talk about how your kids aren't yet to the age of having devices, but here's the talk, if you haven't already had this talk with your kids, that you're going to need to have soon. And that's about strangers, right? About stranger danger. Yeah. Like, that's a really important conversation to have with your kids. But you could go too far there and make them start to live in a world where every stranger is trying to kidnap them. Right. And how is does that, right, mean that interact right. with people church? or think about covid right now? Right. Like if everything we're telling our kids is 100 percent about safety, then they're going to be terrified of the world even after they're vaccinated. Like there, there's these conversations. There has to be some nuance. And so when it comes to online, I think you're mm-hmm. right about that. If if they think that every single thing they share must be done in complete fear that somebody on the other side is going to use it and that they have to completely protect themselves and close themselves off from everybody, I think there's a danger in that. And so, again, this is why yeah. it's so difficult for us as parents. How do you have the conversation with your kids about stranger danger without making them completely a wreck around every stranger? How do we have right. a conversation about how you act online and the dangers that are inherently uh, there online without making them fearful of every person and everything that they see. I don't have a great answer to that, but I totally think you're right that we can over we can overcorrect there uh, mm. and set our kids up to just be like, Mom, I'm never leaving the house. I'm never talking to anybody and right, everything's right. danger. I do think that that's that's a tricky one. That's a tricky line to try to walk.
0: Well, and and that is, I mean, honestly, I look at parents like you and I think, gosh, I'm so grateful that there are people that I can look to who are, you know, some years ahead of us in in that department and learn from them, you know, and I think that obviously the world's going to look different 15 years from now than it does right now in a lot of ways. But at the very least, it is. Yeah. You use the word navigate a lot. I think that's the right word. It's like you're going to have to probably course correct now and again, and it's going to look different than maybe you planned. And we know that, you know, when it comes to parenting. That's something that people feel very passionately about. But this is uh, like all the articles. It's up on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think, maybe even additional resources. Do you have other articles or other disciplines or apps that have been helpful or philosophies that you've adopted? Uh, we would love to hear from you all. How are you navigating what is probably going to be sort of a, an ever-shifting conversation? Coming up next, though, Brian, I don't know if you're a Tim Ferriss guy or not. Uh, he, he, I think, is fascinating. And this headline reads, Tim Ferriss is no longer living the Tim Ferriss lifestyle and neither should you, because success isn't always about efficiency and output. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Do you know the name of that, Brian? Do you know who that is? I do not. Mm. Anywho, I did learn from a friend recently. He begins his day every day on the treadmill for an hour, and he both reads and listens to audiobooks at the same time no do you do way that? It's, really yep it says it helps him retain it so he'll like listen while he's reading it and he listens at like two and a half times speed which blows my mind i've tried even like just one time faster on the on the old yeah. podcast yeah. and yeah. i cannot do it which I, everyone tells me you know marcus brown our uh our very own marcus brown Tells us that you just kind of get used to it and your brain kind of picks up. And I don't know if I haven't stuck with it enough, but either way, there is a reason for that rambling here. Tim Ferriss, and uh, he's done a bunch of stuff, maybe most famously the author of the four-hour work week. What, what was the joke you made during the break? He must, he must, be, a must be a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> hey, people are making
1: jokes about us. We can make our own jokes.
0: <laughs> That's true. Might as well. Beat him to the punch. But, yeah, he's, he's all about – you know efficiency and output and uh, and mastery and gaining new insights and new skills and talents he's got i mean a, a couple of really great ted talks he just he cranks out a bunch of content at a just a blazing fast pace i thought this was interesting though from Inc.com. tim ferriss is no longer living the tim ferriss lifestyle and neither should you because success isn't always about efficiency and output what's going on here
1: yeah at the risk it says of overstating the case tim ferriss helped usher in an era of maximizing productivity from outsourcing tasks to automating functions to the best way to peel a hard boiled egg ferriss mm-hmm. turned doing more by doing less the whole optimal minimal thing into a movement so you talk about the 4 hour work week the 4 hour body uh, tools of titans and tribe of mentors success tools tactics and strategies gleaned from a host of extremely successful people so yeah ferris is seen as the king of personal productivity and self-optimization even though he's always been much more much deeper uh, hold that thought he sa- it goes on to say when i told a friend i read about a hundred books he immediately said what's your process i don't have one i said Of course you do. There's no way you can read that many books without a process. Do you keep a prioritized list? Do you put three books you'll read next on your calendar? Do you set reminders? I cringe. I don't have a process. (laughs) The only process I have is that if I see a book I want to read, I buy it immediately. Then when I finish a book, I look at my library and start whatever seems interesting at that moment. If I read solely for self-improvement, I probably would have a process. Sometimes I read for work. Sometimes I read to learn. Sometimes for fun. Reading makes me happy. That's my goal, which means mm. my reading process doesn't need to be optimized. In fact, optimizing it would probably reduce the fun. Sometimes mm. productivity does matter. If you have to do something, finding ways to do it as efficiently and effectively as possible makes sense. In fact, finding ways to be as efficient and effective as possible could actually be fun, turning what could be drudgery into a competition, if only with yourself. But if you want to do something, efficiency and effective effectiveness shouldn't always take precedent. Let's mm. pause on that line right there. That's so good. the difference between having to do something and wanting to do something. If he says, if you want to do something, efficiency and effectiveness shouldn't always take precedence. You said, that's good. Why don't you talk a little bit more about why you think that's good?
0: Yeah. The, the picture that just came to my mind was like being served a really decadent slice of chocolate cake. Mm. And then, trying to wharf it down just as fast as possible. And you're like, and then, and then like putting your hands up in victory, like did it 0.3 seconds. Everyone at the table would be like, bro, that's not what chocolate cake is for, man. Like that's not, that's not how it's, it's long. How I felt watching people like slam cups of coffee, like they were at a kegger, you know I'm like? That's not what coffee's for, man. Like it's, and again, I'm guilty as charged. I've definitely slammed coffee before because I needed, you know, I needed caffeine right then that minute. But there is something I think that we, feel and know intrinsically that when you watch somebody just just blaze through something when it's, when you know that it's meant to be enjoyed mm-hmm. this is this is why i think the reading one is interesting because it does depend on why you're reading if you're like right. man, i i i want to get into passive income and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna read as as much as fast as i possibly can to kind of get my brain around it but if you're doing that with like a novel you're like that might not be the best way to read a novel, actually, it might be better just to kind of sit in it and enjoy it, and reread stuff. And that line, if you want to do, or if you want to do something, if you actually want to enjoy something, efficiency and effectiveness shouldn't always take precedence. That means that sometimes maybe it should. That's right. But i I think he's I think he's really onto something. He he quotes Ferris uh, next, who said, "I am not focused on maximizing productivity because that begs the question to what aim. I'm revisiting those questions and my answers to those questions during this time." I think that's fascinating that somebody who is like known as it's right. the productivity m- maximizer is even having his own kind of existential question. Like, is that w- who I want to be, though, all the time, always? Is is that ultimately the goal? And uh, yeah, I think this idea of, of enjoyment and delight and pace and rhythm, I think, is as timely now as it's ever been.
1: Yeah, I love the examples they use. He says, optimize my morning routine. Absolutely. Uh, optimize yeah. how I respond to questions and inquiries. Absolutely. Uh, it works and it works for me. So that sees something he does optimize, but then I love these examples, but I still cut the grass with a push mower. It takes more time mm. and effort than a riding mower, but I enjoy the process more. I still paint with a roller, not a sprayer. It takes more time and effort, but I enjoy mm. the process more. Just kind of saying things. Uh, he talks about you know building something that's going to take you time to do uh, that there are times to go, yes, I need to optimize this. I need to do this uh, in as little amount of time as possible, that it can be done in and done effectively. And But there's other things that we need to destroy. I had a moment, it just came to mind for me last week. Uh, hmm. You know, you and I have talked about in the time of the pandemic, we've had less and less opportunities to just meet with people as pastors, right? But uh, yeah. I, somebody from our church who I love, uh, this guy came to our church Uh, I shot him a text. Hey man, it's been a while. Let's catch up. And, uh, he's like, yeah, grab a drink. We met at the church, socially distant, whatever, you know? And we started talking and talking and talking. And I, there was a very specific moment where I thought to myself, uh, yeah, you know what? I've got things to do. Like it's been X amount of time. I've got things to do. And then I had this second thought, never having read an article like this. I, then I had a second thought and it was this, no, I'm actually really enjoying this. Like, yes, whatever else happens, happen. You know, if it means I got to do emails later in the day, if it means I have to do this now, I wasn't going to blow off somebody else or whatever, like, you know, but there I had the space and I thought to myself, literally, you know what? I I miss this. I'm enjoying doing this. Is this the most effective, this optimizing the effectiveness of my day and every minute? Probably not. Uh, but I'm enjoying just sitting and talking. I had a moment like that last week where I actually before doing our show, I came home and I I had something I needed to get done. But then my wife and I just started talking on the couch. And I mm. thought to myself, I'm just going to talk to her until our show starts. Like this is, yes. I'm enjoying this. The kids are doing their work. We have a lone quiet time. We're not trying to figure out some problem. I'm uh-huh. enjoying this. I think those moments where we go, you know what, this might not be the quote unquote, optimizing my effectiveness and, and getting the most optimization out of my day. It's still what life is about Sometimes, Just enjoying, go for, go for a walk, have a nice conversation. Like you said, enjoy that cup of coffee, whatever yes. it might be. I really do appreciate this.
0: Yeah, the refrain that shows up a couple of times in this blog is because not everything that is meaningful can be measured. I think that's right. I think some meaningful things can be measured, but not but not everything. And he offers, I think, a helpful rubric in kind of thinking through, you know, before you optimize a task or function, take a step back and consider the goal. If extreme efficiency is the only goal, by all means, optimize away. But if a personal component is involved, purpose or meaning or satisfaction or fulfillment or self-awareness or any number of other emotional rather than quantifiable outcomes, then make sure optimization doesn't require too high a cost. I think I just think that's so smart, man. And the notion, you know, and, and we've talked a couple of times on the show, Piper's written about this a number of times where even our relationship with God is not just simply he's not just simply to be revered and obeyed, although that's obviously important. He's also meant to be enjoyed and has given us things and people around us to also enjoy. And he goes on later in the article, to say, I know plenty of people who are massively successful who are also miserable. And of course, we all do. And I think at the very least, I thought I thought this was interesting, especially since it was coming from the perspective of someone like Tim Ferriss, who is he's the optimizer. He's the maximizer. Everyone That's everyone right. knows that. So even for him to say ah, that might not be as all-encompassing as maybe I've previously made it out to sound. And right. uh, again, we'd love to know what you think. What are maybe some tips or tricks that you have, ways that you've you know, better assessed what should be optimized and what shouldn't? That's up at our Facebook page, at Common Good Talk. Coming up next from Kyle Strobel, though, when social media is antithetical to the cross. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hello everyone. Welcome back to the Common Grid for the last time today. But we will be back, Lord willing, again tomorrow, four to six PM Central Standard Time on AM eleven sixty hope for your life. But before we land the plane, before we dock the boat, before we park the car, before we You got another one? Uh chain the bike. How about we chain the chain bike? Chain the chain the bike. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty far to remind you later of a, I saw a, a video. I'll just tell you right now. Why not? Um, this guy was intentionally like leaving his really nice bike up against a tree, unchained uh, and filming to see who would steal it. What people didn't see though, is that the the bike was actually like hooked to that tree with like a really long rope. <laughs> so the person would like steal it, take off down the hill or whatever. And then eventually <laughs> the rope would run out and they would just fly over the handlebars. Oh, that's I don't awesome. know Why? I, yeah, it's probably cruel or illegal or something, but they are stealing it. So either way, <laughs> I don't, Do you I don't know why st- that visual just came to mind.
1: Johnny, the strangest. I'll tell the story fast. The strangest yeah. getting stolen story. Uh, we live mm-hmm. within walking distance from our kids school. And a couple of years ago, one of my kids left their bike in the driveway uh, and then they came running in. Mom, dad, my bike's missing in the morning. And we're like, somebody oh, stole no. your bike just out. Literally what happened, some kid was walking to school, saw the bike, rode it to school, and then at the end of school, rode it back, parked it in our driveway,
0: and walked home. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. That's. Have you used that in a sermon yet? I have not. but. Oh, you got to wow. figure out a way to work that in, yeah. man. That's good. That's really good. All right, so before we get into this article from Kyle Strobel when social media is antithetical to the cross – i know you've been waiting all day do you want to hear the holidays uh, you know the answer to that question yeah that's true all right i'm just i'm just gonna i'm gonna go for it then these are these are some pretty good ones it i mean it is bill of rights day so let's just let's okay. get that out of the way but that's a that's a, that's a big deal i think our own keith conrad actually tweeted about that earlier He did. i think it was pretty funny yeah okay a couple other things ready it's uh national cupcake day uh that's a good day okay you're it's it's actually National Cupcake Day slash lemon cupcake day. I don't think I've ever had a lemon cupcake before. Yeah,
1: I would think I would be less excited about a lemon cupcake than just a regular cupcake.
0: Uh, agreed. Also, National Wear Your Pearls Day. I know that you're probably donning yours right now, is that yes. correct? Celebrating, yes. <laughs> Obvi- obviously. And this one, it's not it's not like deep belly laugh funny, but it just caught me off guard. It is Drum roll, please. I'm ready. Cat herders day. <laughs> not cat holders. <laughs> herders. No, cat herders. Someone who herds cats. Today is your day. Today so, is your you know, day. <laughs> there's somebody, there, worth, there there's it is. somebody
1: right now listening being like, finally. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My day in the sun. All right. So we've, we've talked a good, a good amount of social media, not just today. Pretty much at least every week we tackle mm-hmm. social media to some degree. And I, I thought this was – a really thoughtful unique take on a conversation that is probably evergreen but sometimes you know when we're filling the rundown it's like do we really want to tackle social media again like is there if it could start to feel a little ecclesiastes like there's nothing new under the sun that's all but i thought this was really well written by kyle strobel when social media is antithetical to the cross you want to get us into it uh
1: yeah sure and and when I read the word anti-antithetical, I have the hardest time not reading anti-ethical. It's just my mind goes somewhere. It's like all the same <laughs> letters,
0: but antithetical. Oh, I just got the- so nervous that I read it the wrong way. No,
1: no. It's okay. just my mind reads antithetical with the word ethical. I don't know. Uh, it says this, Kyle Strobel writes, imagine that you saw someone teaching 1,000 people in a field. Wow, you might think. That person is quite a following. Normally, we would quickly recognize that this person is a teacher for good or for bad. The problem is that in our age of social media, we have all become teachers. James, on the other hand, tells us that not many of you should become teachers. Naively, we can think this means that not many of you should be called teachers as if we were we are the ones who determine what counts uh, as a teacher. Instead, we are warned Mm -hmm. against becoming teachers because James asserts for you know that Uh, We who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Let me suggest that one of the side effects of social media is that Christians of all sorts have blindly become teachers, often propagating misinformation, division and discord. This, it turns out, is not a minor sin. I was going to keep reading. but I just need to sit in that one for a second. I have not thought of that as social media as teaching. Uh, But his point is solid. We've got these followers. We've got people. We put stuff out there. Uh It's informing. It's teaching. It's uh, it's convincing and convicting. Uh, So his idea here that propagating misinformation, division and discord is doing that as a teacher is not a minor sin he's kind of raised, let me put it this way. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. He's really raising the le- level even to than what we've le- raised. We're like, no, this is a bad thing. Bad idea. He's like, nope, this is bigger than that. This is a huge deal.
0: Yeah. I remember the first time reading this passage. I was in undergrad. I think when it hit me in a very fresh way, as I was training to become a pastor and I mean, it, it caused some sleepless nights for me. I have n- I have no idea why, but it, it like really, and we had a a great Bible professor that made kind of the same distinction that Kyle is making here. Like, hey, now would be the time to pull the ripcord. Like if you're not interested in taking this warning seriously, maybe you shouldn't be a pastor. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm 20 or something thinking, should I be a pa-? Like, I don't know. It was, there was no like deep, dark secret. It was just really the kind of, I'm immensely grateful for, you know, really wise men and women who who helped, kind of weigh the gravity of that. And if you recall, I mean, you're, you're just a few years older than me, but like social media wasn't a thing yet. No, like it, I mean, it not, not to the degree that it is now. And so, yeah, that's kind of why I like this take, because I think, I think he's right. I think it's, it is deeper than just, well, everyone's got a platform. Like, well, okay, what happens on platforms? Something is being conveyed. And if the mm-hmm. Bible has some serious warnings about hey, be careful when you have some kind of audience or platform, because There's some stuff that comes with that. I I think it's I think it's a great insight.
1: Yeah. So let me jump down to the bottom. He good for the most of the article. He's going to unpack these passages out of the book of James. But he goes on to say, yeah, so as we consider how we communicate, particularly online in this present evil age, let us consider how our words bear witness to where we come from, either from God Mm -hmm. or from the world, the flesh and the devil. Have we shared news that has turned out to be false? Then repent, Mm -hmm. apologize to your followers and commit to not sharing anything you have not researched well? Have you rejected a view without actually learning about it and weighing it on its own terms? Or have you simply found it useful to be able to write off others by using labels you have not spent time researching? Repent, Hmm. throw yourselves on the mercy of God and recognize how you have failed to be honest with yourself and others. Have you used hot button topic terms? that generate reactions in others, not because you've read or understood those who affirm them, but because you know that people will back you and validate your your rage. Seek the Lord, repent, and see how you have not sought the way from above, the way of Jesus. Uh, When you teach your followers, you are a teacher. It does not matter if you accept that identity or not. It is possibly worse if you don't, he writes, because Mm. then you're just denying the truth. Have you embraced a position in the people of God that is not yours to embrace? Are you willing to bear the judgment of God for what you have disseminated? Consider carefully how you interact online. False teachers are not simply those who teach false doctrine. False teachers, biblically, are also those who teach in a way that does not align with the way of Jesus. And he ends out of First Timothy 1. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Amen. This is a well-written, convicting yes. piece of uh, of writing from Kyle Strobel here.
0: Yeah, I can't think of anything I would possibly want to add. I'll just reread that sentence. False teachers are not simply those who teach false doctrine. False teachers, biblically, are also those who teach in a way that does not align with the way of Jesus. I think mm-hmm. that's such a good call. And and hopefully he's making the case that, that I want to make. is not just people who hold a position of pastor or elder or teacher like this is something that all of us are responsible for which is a different way of ending the show than we typically do but I thought man kind of kind of going into the rest of today and this week I found this to be a pastoral word a a challenging word and uh, and certainly one worth considering like every other article that is up on our Facebook page we would love to know what you think weigh in in the comments or send us a private message and with that friends The show is over, but we'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.